Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the latest episode of Fish Bites, the Miami Herald's Miami Marlins podcast. I'm Jordan McPherson flying solo this week. Got a lot to talk about, but going to try to make this a little bit of a quicker episode. Uh, before we dive into anything, just one quick note. Uh, we mentioned last week, Andre and I, that we are going to be moving to a video-only format of the Fish Bites podcast, Fish Bites show, however we're going to actually call it, uh, starting this week. However, we're still going to be available on all of your va- favorite podcast platforms through the end of the month. So you have until October until we go video-only. At that point, we'll be available only on the Herald YouTube page and attached to my stories on the Herald website. So keep enjoying us on Apple, Spotify, anywhere else where you listen to your podcasts. Uh, That said, let's dive into what's been a pretty wild eight days since we last caught up on last week's episode. Uh, Start with just the straight game results. Uh, We talked right before the Marlins series in Milwaukee, which... That week was Milwaukee and the Braves said the Marlins had to win at least four. They won four, just not in the way that we thought they would. They dropped three of four in Milwaukee to the Brewers, scored just five total runs in those four games. Then they come back to Miami and they sweep the Braves. They score 36 combined runs in those games, nine to six win, 11 to five win, and a 16 to two blowout to clinch it, to clinch the sweep. First time the Marlins have swept the Atlanta Braves. Since 2015, first time that a National League East team took a series against the Braves this year. First time an NL East team took a series against the Braves, period, since 2021. Just incredible. Just unbelievable. Something you didn't think would happen. And then Monday, Marlins dropped the series opener to the Mets 2-1. to So, sort of a bit of a topsy-turvy, hot and cold one end of the extreme, the other end of the extreme over the last eight days. And honestly, that's what the Marlins have been a lot this year. You see them either, especially on the offense, you either see them really at their peak where everything's clicking, the game plan works or executing everything perfectly, or they can't figure out the pitcher, whether it's an ace or a rookie making his fifth or sixth start or a soft throwing guy starter who only throws two pitches. They you really don't see a middle ground with this offense. They're either going to get the right hit at the right time or they're going to get completely washed over. And that's been their MO all year. Skip Schumacher mentioned that in Milwaukee. And it's like, he's basically like, it's September at this point. We know who we are. We know what we need to fix. But really, how much is going to change by over the last three weeks? That said, when you look at a series like what they did in Atlanta, where not, they not only slugged nine or 10 home runs, they drew almost 20 walks. They were patient at the plate. They were waiting for the right pitches. And it was up and down the lineup where everyone produced. I mean, you start with what Jazz Chisholm Jr. did with the two grand slams on Saturday and Sunday to blow both games open. Uh, you see what the likes of a Gary Hampson does, where he's coming in off the bench, then a spot starter and 
gets four RBI, scores two runs, goes three for nine with a double. A guy like Yuli Gurriel in the Saturday game. Marlins go down three nothing in the first inning, in the top of the first inning. Luis Rice hits a leadoff home run. Two guys get on base. Yuli Gurriel hits a go-ahead home run. Marlins just like that are up four to three after being down three nothing in the top half of that inning. And then again, Luis Rice, like I mentioned, uh Three home runs in the Braves series, including two leadoff shots, back-to-back games Friday and Saturday. And going to talk about it a little bit more later on, but got to his 200th hit on Monday, so we're going to dive into that a little bit toward the end. But the Braves series just showed at their peak, at their best, this Marlins team can really can compete with anyone. And they did it without their horses on the mound, without most of their horses on the mound. Johnny Cueto threw four innings on Friday. Brian Hone threw four and a third innings on Saturday. Jesus Lazaro pitched the third game and was stellar. Six shutout innings. And again, he's essentially becoming their horse with Sandy Alcantara sidelined. But Braxton Garrett didn't pitch in that game. Yuri Perez didn't pitch in that game. Obviously, Sandy didn't pitch because he's down right now. Edward Cabrera didn't pitch in that game. And the Marlins still found a way to get three wins against the Atlanta Braves, a team that won nine of ten games against them this year and has won the season series since I can't even remember when against this team. But that said, you take the positives from that, and then you look at what happened in Milwaukee when they did face some of the big horses. They faced Brandon Woodruff and got shut out. They faced Freddie Peralta and only got one run, I believe it was, against him. They didn't face Corbin Burns against them, but most likely they're going to see him later on this week when Milwaukee comes to Miami. So the Marlins have to figure out a way to, even when they're not at their best, find a way to just scratch across more than one run, especially against playoff-type teams, playoff-caliber teams. And they're going to need it, especially since the playoff race is still really, really close. Again, you look at the standings entering Tuesday, and you've got four teams separated by one game. Luckily for two playoff spots now, not just one. The Arizona Diamondbacks did what they needed to do. They took six of seven against the Cubs over a 10-day span. And now the Cubs are back in the thick of it. They're not holding their own in the second spot now. Entering Tuesday, the Arizona Diamondbacks are in the lead for the second spot. They're a half game above both the Cubs and the Reds. And then the Marlins are a half game behind both of them. The Marlins are one game out from being in the second wild card spot, which really just rejiggers everything. Because now you have, again, it's four teams fighting for two spots. Five of you include San Francisco, who I guess you should. They're only two games out of the third spot. So five teams fighting for two spots instead of four teams fighting for one spot. Gives a little bit more of an opening for how things are going to go. But either way, it's still going to be a nitty-gritty run down to the end. And when you look at where everything stands, just the quick breakdown of those other teams – a lot of their, the Marlins schedule wise sets up pretty well. They have two left against in this series against the Mets Tuesday and Wednesday. They play the Brewers this weekend. Then they go to the Mets and to the Pittsburgh Pirates to close out their season. Uh, the rest of the group, the Diamondbacks and the Giants start a two game series on Tuesday. The Diamondbacks then go to the Yankees and White Sox and end with the Astros. The Giants just face all NLS teams. They have the two with the Diamondbacks. They have seven more with the Dodgers and three with the Padres. The Cubs have a relatively easy week this week, three with Pittsburgh, three with Colorado, and then they end at the Braves and at the Brewers. So their final week is going to be tough. If the Cubs want to have a chance here, they need to build their ground now and then hope that they can maintain over that final week. 
And then the Reds, they're facing the Twins. This They're facing the Twins now. They already took the series opener. And then it's Pirates, Guardians, Cardinals to end it. So the Reds, out of everyone here, has the easiest road in terms of schedule. But as we've seen with this Marlins team and as we see throughout baseball, baseball, there really isn't an easy win. I mean, again, I go back to Oakland taking two of three against Atlanta earlier this year. Anything can happen. The Marlins dropped four of their seven against St. Louis. They dropped four of their six against Colorado. And yet they've been 500 or better against every team in the playoff field, except for in the NL playoff field, except for the Braves, who they ultimately won four and nine against. And right now they're one and three with the Brewers with three left. All of the other teams who are in the hunt or seeming like they'll be in the playoffs, Miami's been 500 or better against. And that actually works in Miami's favor should this wild multi-team race for two spots end up in tiebreakers because the initial tiebreakers are head-to-head record against teams who are tied. So if Miami is tied head-to-head against any of the teams except the San Francisco Giants at this moment, the Marlins win the tiebreaker because they went 7-6 and six against Philly. They went 4-2 and two against both the Cubs and the Diamondbacks. And then they split their series against both the Reds and the Giants. The second tiebreaker, which again only applies in this case for the Reds and the Giants with the Marlins, is intra-division record, a team's record against their division opponents. Miami right now is 24 and 23 against the NL East. That's one over 500. The Reds are 19 and 27. They're eight under 500 against the Central. So the Marlins will win head to head against the Reds because of the second tiebreaker. The Giants are 23 and 17 against the NLS, six over 500. But again, they still have 12 games left. But if the season ended today, the Giants would have that tiebreaker over the Marlins head to head. But again, we need to see how those 12 games the Giants still have left shake out and how the Marlins five games against the Mets shake out to fully figure out what these tiebreakers would be. Three, if we get into the wild scenarios where there's three or potentially even four teams tied. That's when it gets really interesting. And it's something that I wrote about this on Monday. It's all, I have a full breakdown on the Herald website. If it's three or more teams tied at the first thing, the first tiebreaker is head to head record of every team involved that's tied. So if let's just say the Marlins, the Diamondbacks, and the Cubs are all tied going in after the final day of the season, then your tiebreaker scenario is breaking down who has the best win percentage among those teams. So the Marlins record against the Cubs and the Diamondbacks compared to the Cubs record against Miami and Arizona and Arizona's record against Miami and Chicago. In this case, Miami went four and two against both of them. So Miami is eight and four against them. That's a 667 win percentage. Arizona went six and one against the Cubs. They went two and four against Miami. They're the Mar- That gives them a 615 win percentage. Chicago, Lost to both of them in convincing fashion. They only have a 231 win percentage. So the pecking order, if those three teams, Miami, Chicago, and Arizona are tied, would be Miami gets first priority, Arizona's second, Chicago's third. And there's all the different permutations that can be involved between Miami, Chicago, Arizona, Cincinnati, San Francisco. I'm not going to go through all of them here. If you want to see how each of those play out based off how how the standings were entering Monday, you can go to the Miami Herald website. I'll probably do another light version of that going into the final week if things are still close or at least update it on here next week about where everything stands. But as right now, there is a primer on the Herald website about 
just the tiebreaker scenarios, the playoffs, what the schedules look like, and just looking at what needs to happen over these final two weeks if the Marlins want to make it to the playoffs for the first time in the full season since 2003. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. And now the shift from playoffs to playoff talk and big picture talk to some individual stuff. Uh, obviously, need to address Sandy Alcantara. Obviously, when we last talked was right after he went on the IL with what the team called a right forearm flexor strain. Since then, we got further update that his MRI revealed a UCL sprain in his right elbow. But obviously, whenever somebody hears UCL in pitchers, you think Tommy John. But as of right now, it looks like Alcantara is going to be avoiding surgery. And in fact, he's throwing. Uh, he threw, he started playing light catch on Wednesday in Milwaukee, was in the outfield for about 15 minutes, both Wednesday and Thursday pregame. And then once the Marlins got back to Miami, he began throwing bullpens. He threw his second one on Monday, 20 pitches, mixed in all of his pitches, including his secondary stuff, which is where he felt the discomfort in the elbow in that start against DC on September 3rd. What this means for Alcantara's immediate future, it's still really unknown at this point. Uh, Marlins are taking it day by day. They're being cautious. Obviously, Sandy Alcantara, even when he had a down first half and had a couple hiccups in the second half, he's still this team's ace. He's still their workhorse. He's still that proven guy in this young yet talented rotation, the one who, when healthy, and again, that's the key word, especially now, when healthy, the Marlins know they can get quality de- quality innings eating from him. They know he can, even in his bad days, he's going to go six innings, six, six and a third, seven innings. And they don't really have that yet with this group. Again, Lazaro is probably the only guy who you can really put in that category from their group that they're going to have with them long-term. But to see that he's throwing and that he's feeling good and that he's feeling optimistic, uh, he was asked straight up, do you think you can pitch this season? His response was, hopefully he can pitch this season. He feels like he can. He's just waiting for any decision that the Marlins are going to make. Skip Schumacher's direct quote about it was, I think anything's possible. I'm never going to doubt Sandy and where he's at. Mentally, he's in a really good spot. Physically, he feels really good. We're taking it day by day. We're not changing our course at all and where he's at. He's going to go through his progression, but he feels really good. So it also brings up the topic of conversation of if he does come back, what is his role going to be? Again, Alcantara has been a starter his entire time with the Marlins and he's been the guy, he's been the eight, he's been the number one guy. If he comes back, there's only two weeks left. So it's hard to see him timeline wise coming back for the regular season. But if he's good to go for the playoffs, do they use him out of the bullpen or do they use him as a quote unquote starter opener, have him go maybe two innings and then sort of like what I talked about last week when Andre and I were talking about who our three would be for a wild card series, have him like work with, say, Edward Cabrera in a piggyback type role. You have Sandy with the pure right-handed stuff, and then you have the crafty lefty to completely flip looks to and also use that to help preserve your bullpen. 
It could be, again, Marlins haven't decided anything yet. They're waiting to see when Sandy gets cleared and if he gets to the point where he has the green light to pitch in the game again this season. But it's just, it is something to think about down the road, considering where the Marlins are and them wanting to have any possible advantage or strength as they try to try to do what they're trying to do. And then to wrap this up, I touched about touched on it earlier in the episode, but few individual milestones either being accomplished or close to being accomplished as the Marlins get through these final two weeks of the season. And I'll start with Luis Arias getting his 200th hit on Monday. First time for him in his MLB career, just the second player in the big leagues this year to do it, uh, joining Ronald Acuna, who coincidentally enough did it Friday against the Marlins. Uh, Luis Arise is just the fourth player in Marlins history to log 200 hits in the season. The others were D. Strange Gordon in 2015-2017, Hanley Ramirez in 07, and Juan Pierre in 2003 and 2004. And it's just the latest milestone that Arise has accomplished. First cycle in Marlins history, uh, flirted with 400 through the All-Star break. Uh, as long as if he finishes, finishes doing all right down the stretch, He's going to be the first player in MLB history to win consecutive batting titles in different leagues. One in the AL last year and is on pace to win it in the NL this year. And as a second hit in the sixth inning on Monday, so he's up to hit. He's up to 201 hits. The Marlins' overall record for hits in a season was 221 by Juan Pierre in 2004. Rise has 11 games to get 20 more hits if he wants to tie at least tie that record. And then a few other individual milestones. Uh, I'll start with Jesus Lazardo. Uh, 30 starts, got start number 30 on Sunday when he went six shutout innings against the Braves, already up to career highs in strikeouts and, and innings pitch. I want folks on the strikeouts here. He's at 194 after his start on Sunday. The Marlins have only had one left-handed pitcher record 200, at least 200 strikeouts in a season. That was Al Leiter back in 1996. He threw exactly 200. Lazardo has one, maybe two starts left this season to get at least six strikeouts to match or break that record by season's end. And it would make him the eighth overall pitcher to have at least 200 strikeouts in the season. Sandy did the last two years. Jose Fernandez in 2016, Anibal Sanchez in 2011, AJ Burnett in 2002, Ryan Dempster in 2000, Kevin Brown in 97, and lighter. And then sticking with the strikeout topic, Tanner Scott who has been arguably the Marlins' most reliable reliever this season, uh, although did give up the go-ahead home run the ninth on Monday to Jeff McNeil. Interesting enough, his first earned run allowed since July 31st. He went all of August without giving up an earned run. Uh, he is fourth among MLB relievers and first in the National League with 96 strikeouts. Should he get four more by the end of the year, he'd be the first left-handed reliever in Marlins' history to strike out at least 100 batters. And then the last two topics, I've talked about this one a couple times before. Uh, Jazz is closing in on a 2020 season. He has 18 home runs, 22 stolen bases. Only four players in Marlins history have had 2020 years. Hanley Ramirez did it four times. Preston Wilson three times. Cliff Floyd, excuse me, twice. And Derek Lee did it once. And then Jorge Soler is four home runs away from getting to 40 on the year. Obviously, his career high is 48. But the Marlins have only had th- had two 40 home run seasons this year in their in their franchise history. 
obviously John Carlos Stanton hitting 59 in 2017 and Gary Sheffield with 42. And Solaire almost got to got home run number 37. Sixth inning against the against the Mets, hit some towering shot to left field, originally ruled fair, and then after chief uh crew chief review, they called a foul, overturned it. That home run would have given the Marlins a 3-1 lead over the Mets. And but it was not meant to be. Marlins couldn't scratch across another run after that. And now where they are where they are, just a half game out of a playoff spot, a full game out of the second wild card spot, and eleven games to go. We will see what they do down the stretch. And again, the rest of their schedule, they've got this last homestand here, two more games with the Mets, and then an off day Thursday, three games with the Brewers, and then they go on the road to close it out with three more with Atlanta and or three more with New York, sorry, and three more, and then three with the Pittsburgh Pirates. Uh, that's going to do it for this week's episode. Uh, we'll be back on the Marlins off day Monday to discuss where things stand going into the final week. So with that, I'm Jordan McPherson. Thanks so much. And we'll see you next week. <laughs>